This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is Michael Easter. Michael is a journalist and author and professor of journalism at UNLV. That's lost. Vegas. He's written a book called The Comfort Crisis, which is something I've thought about quite a bit over the course of my life, about the importance of being comfortable, being uncomfortable, which is something we talk about in the SEAL teams, and the importance of facing adversity, making that a part of your life, building on the lessons that you learn, because you're going to get knocked down in life for sure. And if you make it too far without getting knocked down, you're not going to be able to deal with it quite as well. So Comfort Crisis, amazing book, had a fantastic time talking to him. And now, without further ado, Michael Easter. Hey, Michael, what's happening? We made it happen. How we are you, We made it happen. Thank you so much for your patience and for switching things around. I sincerely appreciate Good, it, man. No worries. How was last week? Oh, let's see. What was last week? Oh, Pearl Harbor. That was, yeah. uh, man, it was such a moving experience. Uh, more so for my daughter. So she's 16. And it was a perfect time in her life to go out there because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the farther we get from that time, there's less touch points with people that were there or people that right. did that, fought in World War II and had uh, grew up in the Depression. So, which ties right into your your book, going through this yeah. adversity and having hard times and being uncomfortable. Um, so she got to talk to all the, and they loved her because that, you know, they're so much older and a lot of the people volunteering yeah. are like, you know, my age, maybe a little younger, a few, a little, little older, you know, but there wasn't anybody that was in their, in their teens. And so she's right. the only teenager. And for them to have this connection with a younger person was just so special for her and for them. And so it was, uh, I think it changed yeah. her life. I think it really changed Dude, that's her, awesome. her life. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot that. of it is exactly because of what you're, you're researching in, in the book. And a lot of that is because, you know, today, like she has not had that many uncomfortable type of experience, like going mm-hmm. out in the wilderness, like we go hunting and stuff together. We yep. do that. But, nice. um, and she's gone to these, uh, you know, month long camps that have taken her into the grand Tetons and, and that sort of a thing. Um, but, uh, oh, dude, she's miles above everyone else. But, <laughs> <great>. I mean, <laughs> so she had a couple of touch points there, but then to talk to people that were, Oh, it was act. It wasn't like, you know, in the thirties, their parents were paying for them to go on an outward bound experience. It's like, right. Oh no, you need to go and kill that rabbit and bring it back so that we can yeah. eat and survive here. Um, totally. as your father's going door to door, maybe selling pencils or whatever, whatever yeah. it is. So it, 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 so it's a little, little different. Like they have to do that to, to survive. And it really forged obviously that generation that, uh, that won world war II and then gave us all the freedoms we have today. So I think she became a lot more appreciative uh, over the course of our week back there. Cause it yeah. wasn't one day. That was also what was important. It was, it was a week of events out there and getting them right. in their wheelchairs, out of their wheelchairs, onto the bus, out of the bus to all these different events and ceremonies and that sort of thing. So it, nice. was, a, it was special, man. It was, it was really cool. I mean, it's so crazy how that whole generation mobilized. I mean, could you imagine like, think of, you know, I'm a professor at a university here and it's like, I just don't, I don't know. It's, it's a strange time, but I think like, that generation, like you're literally 18 years old, Pearl Harbor happens. It's like, all right, we're going. And it's yep. just like, that's what, just what you did. You know, um, it's, it's wild. Very yep. cool. And a lot of these guys, they lied about their age. Uh, so we had yeah. 63, yeah, 63 veterans out there world from world war two. Um, we had six that were at Pearl Harbor. Um, but others were 12 when Pearl Harbor happened. 
And then they still, they got to 15 and lied to get in. Uh, wow. And back then, you know, they couldn't check as easily as they can today. So right. they're like, oh, you have this signed note from your parent who might be like a sibling who's one year older than you. Yeah. Uh, okay, you're in off to, you know, off to basic training and then into the war. So um, yeah, some of these guys, it was amazing. So our youngest was 96 and our oldest was 104. And we had wow. everything in between. And wow. uh, they were Super all cool. totally with it, uh, which was amazing. You know, obviously the bodies are on a lot are you know, starting to deteriorate a little bit, yep. but their minds were there, uh, which was pretty cool. So maybe it's like after you hit a certain point, maybe after you hit like 90 or something, like you, you've got it till the end. I don't know. But for this yeah. group anyway, this particular 63 uh, people, uh, they were totally with it. You know, they could got frustrated because they couldn't hear sometimes, right. you know, so that was, that's a, an issue so you have to be aware of, but uh, man, they were all with it and they were sharing stories and, and it was incredible. Just cool. incredible. But that whole generation, you're right. You know, they, they, but they experienced discomfort and it was a part yeah. of life. And, uh, only, right. and that's why I love when I saw that this book came out, the comfort crisis, I was like, ah, I mean, there were two things that went through my mind. One was like, oh, awesome. I think about this. I've been thinking about these things my entire life. But the yeah. other part was, oh man, it's a little sad that we need a book like this today. Uh, yeah. because it was just, okay, that's just life for all of human history up until a little while ago. Uh, yeah. it's a, and it was not, not too long ago where we had to actually, uh, think about those things and be like, oh, okay. To move forward as a productive human being. And, uh, uh, I'm gonna have to experience a little discomfort here. Now we have to, in a lot of cases, put ourselves into those, uh, right. so we that we're ready when they actually it. happen. So <laughs> we're ready when those situations come. But, uh, yeah. I want to talk to you about it, like how, how you got to this to this point. Um, uh, you're a professor of journalism at uh, mm -hmm. uh, UNLV. Um, and uh, so what was your path into journalism and into academia before you had the idea to write this book? What was that, that journey like that uh, got you in front, of a, in front of the classroom? Yeah, so I, I actually was a editor at Men's Health, a writer and editor at Men's Health Magazine for a bunch of years. And um, so I'd been a magazine writer. I did stuff for other magazines. I was at Esquire for a little while. I'd sort of written for all the dude magazines, um, did a lot of science writing as well. So it was, did stuff for Scientific American. And at a certain point in the magazine world, you stop uh, writing quite as much and you have to start editing. They start asking you questions like, can you please you know, figure out the future of journalism for us and how we're going to make money from this thing? And that's not what I was interested in, right? I wanted to write. And so uh, basically what happened is I thought, okay, um, I'd kind of been interested in teaching at a university because if you're in the journalism department, half your job is teaching and the other half is writing, right? So I was like, okay, I could kind of have this free license to write, teach some classes, hang out with young people. And a uh, job opened up at UNLV and my wife and I had oddly wanted to move to Las Vegas. And so I took it and uh, yeah, now I'm here. No kidding. It doesn't look like you could have done all this by this. I mean, you look very young. Uh, that's what I, when I, when I saw what you looked like for the first time, I forget if it was in the book jacket or social media or whatever. I'm like, this guy like 25 years old. How's he doing all of this? How's your professor? Uh, I'm how 57. old are you? How old are you? 57. Stop it. 57. No, I'm just kidding. I'm 35. <laughs> <laughs> I was like 10 years off, but, uh, uh, so that what inspired you to want to, to write in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say that I grew up in a house that had a lot of books. My mom is like a voracious reader. My dad was never around, um, but my mom, we always had books around. And I think I was maybe 13 or 14 years old. And I read Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. And it was just like, that book just hooked me. Like, that was it. I was like, oh my God, you could go on an adventure 
And um, I mean, that one turned out bad, but you could go on an adventure and write about it. Like, wow, that seems cool. And I'd always been a magazine junkie, like always had a bunch of subscriptions to magazines as a kid. And um, <clears throat> but when I got to college, like for, for whatever reason, it never occurred to me. Yeah, maybe you could do that for a living. Like it just, it just didn't. So in college I had studied, uh, I had done this major that was kind of a mix of environmental science and international relations. And I had, I don't, what I wanted to do with that. I was like, yeah, I guess I could get a law degree, a business degree over work for like a, you know, an oil company or something like that. Like, I didn't know. Uh, but then I took this class when I was a junior, when it was too late to change my major, there was an environmental writing class. So Basically, we just had to, to write about environmental stuff. So, you know, we'd read like Thoreau, um, we'd read Edward Abbey, um, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, and um, we would do our own kind of stories like that. And I just enjoyed the hell out of it. I was like, this is awesome. I had fun doing it. Um, I was halfway decent at it, which I gauged because, you know, people would in class would read my stuff and they would laugh or they'd be like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. Um, and so from there, uh, I gr actually graduated college the year of the financial collapse. So my, uh, my classes option was either, you know, go live in your mom's basement and take some random job that if you could find one or go to grad school. Mm. So I went to grad school, uh, cause I didn't really have any, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I had, there was nothing on my resume that indicated that I could ever yeah. do a job in writing. So I went to, uh, I went to grad school for journalism. Um, and that was in New York city and that just sort of led me into the path of, of magazines and writing. Nice. Yeah. I think having that foundation built, uh, as, as a reader, uh, in my case, as a fan of a particular genre, um, I mean, it sets you up, uh, much better, I guess, than, uh, just waking up one day and saying, Hey, I think I'm going to do this. I'll go to school for it. Um, but having grown up, you know, diving into the pages of Newsweek and time and our local paper and New York times and the wall street journal, and then reading, uh, all these guys like David Morrell and Nelson DeMille and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Tom Clancy and all these guys growing up. Um, and then finding out things from there, like, Oh, what is this about Israel over here? I want to find out more about that. And then doing the research. Um, but I was also encouraged. My mom was a librarian, still is a librarian. Uh, oh, so cool. we grew up with this love of reading and books and my dad encouraged reading. And it was just a normal part of our life. It wasn't that's where I feel like I failed as a parent. I, I've made it. And I thought I, I was reading to the kids from the day they were home. Like I was there just like my parents were. I was reading every single night to them, uh, even when they're in the crib, all the way up until they got, you know, too old and want me to keep reading to them uh, anymore. But uh, it, now it's like, hey, it's time to go read. But it wasn't like that in our house. It was just like normal. It was like eating breakfast or having dinner together. Uh, reading was just a part of it. It was so natural. It wasn't like this thing you had to do. Um, so yeah. I tried to do that, but I don't think I did a very good, good job. So I'm thinking that, uh, that our kids are going to, their path into reading might be through like audiobooks or something like that, just because they're yeah. so connected to these, uh, devices. And that's the fastest growing segment of publishing anyway, is the, the audio yeah. side. Um, so I think that may, might be their path, or at least I'm, I'm hoping because once again, like not just, uh, like we talked about the world war two generation and going through to the depression. Well, I had touch points with them because of my grandparents and I got to talk to them about the depression and what they did in world war two and that sort of thing. My grandfather was killed in world war two off Okinawa in 45. Oh, wow. um, but I was also reading about all these things, reading about mm -hmm. other people's experience, other people's adversity, reading endurance you know, about Shackleton, like reading all these books that, uh, also made, that became a part of me essentially. So when I was doing something like cross country running or getting into boxing or whatever, and in the ring, whatever it was, 
I was like, well, you know what? I'm not storming the beaches at Normandy or going over the beach at Iwo Jima, or I'm not, you know, on an ice floe um, eating my shoe leather to survive. Um, this isn't that bad. You know, I can run another mile or in buds. I can do a few more push-ups here in SEAL training or whatever it might yeah. be. But a lot of that came from reading. So the preparation for life wasn't just getting in the boxing ring or getting on the mat in jujitsu or running cross country or playing lacrosse or whatever it was, uh, or putting on a backpack and heading into the, the Sierras. It was reading. And, yeah. uh, and I loved reading books by journalists. I mean, I, cause they had already had this background. Uh, they, they were, they had seen so much and written about so many different things that they had options about what they wanted to write about. So they got to choose something I found that they were passionate about, which is kind of what, what, what you did. Um, so I remember there was a book in high school called, uh, I think it was called down the Amazon. It's like my shelves over here. I, they go three deep. So I have to like dig a little bit and I've yeah. kept these books for so long, but you know, he like went down the Amazon in like a kayak. And he was, uh, I think he was a reporter for a newspaper in Northern California, but came back and wrote about it. Awesome book. Heard him talk, I think at REI, um, back when I was in, in high school. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, it, 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 you get to choose what you want and are passionate about, which was so cool about, about this as well. So how did this come about then? So you're already a professor at UNLV. You've already worked at Esquire and these different, different magazines, and you get to choose what you want to write about, essentially, what you want to devote a number of years to, uh, however many it, it might be. Um, but you get to figure out, hey, why do I want to do this? And you get to choose something you're passionate about. So how did this come about? What, what was that decision to write about yeah. this. So the, the short answer is that, you know, through just through personal experience and through my career, writing about health, my entire career, um, specific, uh, specifically lifestyle health. So I don't typically write about what happens in the doctor's office, right? I'm writing about like things a person can do to improve their health. Um, and when you look at that, every single thing that you can do to improve your life, it usually comes with some form of discomfort, right? If I want to improve my fitness. I have to exercise. Exercise is hard. It's uncomfortable. I want to uh, lose weight, I'm probably going to be hungry, right? But even things like improving your mental health, usually it, it, you have to unpeel a few onions that maybe you don't want to unpeel, right? A couple of layers there. And um, so I kind of made that observation, right? And then I ended up doing a piece for Men's Health where I went on a hunt, a backcountry hunt with Donnie Vincent for, I think we were like five days and it was, so it's not super long. But we went up, uh, it was uh, in Nevada, up in, in the mountains, and that sort of exposed me to like, you know, it's cold the entire time. I'm hungry the entire time. I'm bored most of the time. Um, anything I do up there, it takes effort, right? And it was like, oh, I'd made this observation that, you know, discomfort usually improves your life. And then I go out into this world that is more uncomfortable, right? And I come back and I just feel like, better in every way. And it was also a wake up call to like, once you go from extended time in the mountains to you're back home, you can see like, Oh my God, the world has become unbelievably comfortable. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like think about what most influences the average person's daily life, right? We wake up in soft beds in temperature control. Food is in the refrigerator. We don't have to work for it. Our work is no longer physical. It's often behind a screen. It's more mental. Um, on and on and on, right? We're never bored anymore because we've got all these distraction devices. Um, so it's just like I got really fascinated in that change because ultimately I'm trained as like a science journalist, right? And But I, I'm also a person who I like to tell a narrative behind what I'm talking about. So uh, Donnie invited me up to the Arctic for more than a month on a long hunt. And I just thought, 
man, that could serve as an overarching narrative to really dive into effectively the science of what are the benefits of discomfort and what are the downsides of how comfortable our world have, has become. And so that's effectively what the book is. So I remember when Donnie did that, he posted about it or told me about it. He's such a great guy. Donnie Vincent, his films are, are amazing. Um, just such an interesting human being and, and just a great, great guy. Um, so I remember when he did that, but, um, that you talk about rites of, of passage in, uh, in the book and, uh, you know, it's, it's such an important thing. I think that's what draws a lot of people to military service today um, because they're looking for that rite of passage, whether they know it or not. It might be just this innate thing that's programmed into us as humans because it's been part of our evolution. Um, so whether you know it or not, picking out special operations, whichever one, is because whether you know it or not, that's a challenge and that this is a rite of passage and you're welcomed into a brotherhood of warriors afterward. You emerge transformed um, at the other end of this test. Um, so in, in here, this is, is, there's so many great, great things you write about in here, but uh, this rites of passage. Um, the first is separation. The person exits the society in which they live and ventures into the wild. The second is transition. The person enters a challenging middle ground where they battle with nature and their mind telling them to quit. The third is incorporation. The person completes the challenge and re-enters their normal life, an improved person. It's an exploration and expansion of the edge of a person's comfort zone. And uh, you, then you talk about rites of passage that still exist in a few cultures. You talk about the uh, the Dutch uh, here in, in this uh, this first chapter. Um, but uh, there are very f- there are very few rites of passage these days. You have to seek them uh, these days, it seems. And you talk about this uh, this helicopter parenting and snowplow parenting. And I hadn't heard snowplow parenting until you, you mentioned it, but, uh, you know, I see it and, uh, I've probably been guilty of it myself at, uh, at times, even though I try to get the kids into uncomfortable positions and get them outside, uh, get them out hunting, get them out feeling cold, get, learn, appreciate these things that we have at home. All those things you just mentioned, the soft bed and the food in the fridge and appreciating where that comes from. Um, and, and all of that, uh, and actually the history of outward bound, and you talk about Outward Bound in the book a little bit, but I, I was fortunate enough to be able to do that as a, as a kid as well and loved the solo part of it, by the way, being out there for uh, however long it was. It, it was 24 hours or two days. I can't can't remember. Maybe it was three even. Um, but I did a Knowles course later, a semester in Alaska, and uh, that was a little longer time. But I loved it. I've always loved being alone. And I've never felt bored my entire life because I think um, when I've been bored, then I get to think and daydream, meaning that I'm not bored anymore. And as a writer, especially in the in fiction, daydreaming is an important thing. And not just to all of a sudden do it one day, but to have that just be a normal part of your life, taking time to be quiet, uh, not having all these digital distractions. And it's just such a healthy thing to do, which you you mentioned in the in the book here. But uh in talking about boredom, I mean, we're all dealing with the the social dilemma and we're dealing with smartphones for us and for our kids a generation that is now growing up with these things. Whereas for a lot of us, it came a little later. Um, what did you take away from that, from the, the importance of being bored uh, and then these digital distractions that, uh, that keep us from having this time to ourselves? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you a story about that. So when we're, when we're up in uh, the Arctic, we're hunting and we're hunting this herd of caribou. And so we're effectively waiting on them to move through. Now, they weren't coming, right? So we're sitting on this hill for hours and hours a day with nothing to do. 
because my cell phone doesn't work up there. I didn't bring a book. I didn't bring a magazine. I didn't bring a computer. I didn't bring an iPad on and on and on. Right. Uh, so I found myself bored again. Right. It's like, so then what do I do? So we start reading the labels on all the food we brought. We start reading the tags on our jackets, on our gear. <laughs> I start doing a ton of push-ups, right? Uh, but then I started thinking of ideas for the magazines I write for. Came up with 17 different story ideas. All of them were good. I started writing some of the book. So I told you that to basically tell you this. And that is that discomfort, uh, or sorry, boredom is an evolutionary discomfort that we evolved to face. And it would kick on anytime whatever we were doing, we weren't getting a good return on our time anymore. So if we need food or else we're going to starve and we're hunting and there's nothing to hunt, boredom kicks on and goes, go do something else, right? So then we go pick potatoes or pick berries or whatever. So boredom is effectively this cue, this discomfort that says, go do something else with your time, right? Find something else to do. And it often puts us into a sort of mind wandering phase where we come up with ideas, and things like that. And in the book now, I argue that um, boredom is effectively dead because we have all these really easy, effortless ways to deal with that discomfort. And that is mainly from all the devices in our life. So you look at the average person, they spend more than 12 hours a day engaging with digital media. So that's from, that's from all different formats, right? Like cell phone, TV screen, computer screen, iPad, everything. Um, but we also know that boredom is, uh, can be good for us because one, you look at the research on boredom and creativity, and boredom is really good at helping people come up with creative ideas. They do these tests where they will, uh, these studies where they will get one group and they'll let them do whatever they want to do. They usually just hang out on their cell phone. And then they'll get another group and they bore the living heck out of them. And then they give them a creativity test. And the people who are in the board group always come up with more, more creative answers. And that's because boredom gives you this time inward for your mind to wander, as you just sort of alluded to. And it's in that phase where your mind is wandering. It's almost kind of like scan on a radio. It's going through all these like weird little things. And you kind of land on something that's like new and intriguing, something that isn't coming at you on Instagram that's like, you know, the fifth post you've seen of a dog that day or whatever. No, not, not hating on dog posts. I do them all the time, but you know, we, I'm arguing that we spend maybe a little too much time engaged with digital media today and need to reinsert boredom back into our lives. Yeah. I wonder every now and again, what uh, the world would look like if we had social media and we had these platforms, we had these digital distractions, let's say uh, during or after the civil war. In, in this country uh, during the civil war, how would that have been weaponized to continue to divide the country when we needed to heal? Um, what if, uh, what if Einstein had it early on uh, social media scanning through that? What if uh, Sir Isaac Newton, what if Benjamin Franklin? Uh, look, anyway, I think about that, how different the world would look had yeah. social media shown up 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, hundred years earlier, 200 years earlier. Um, and I don't think the outcomes are very good. Um, so yeah, and you, write, you actually write about that in here. You, uh, and I love this one. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about it in this, this way today. But of course, we all heard of, of these Silicon Valley tech executives not allowing their children to have phones and social media platforms because they're well aware of the dangers. And not just danger, that's like a too easy of a word to use, but just how, how unhealthy it is for our mental well-being. Uh, to be tied to these devices, right. constantly comparing ourselves uh, to others who are obviously taking one snapshot and essentially their marketing uh, is what Got they're it. doing, whether it's personal or professional, whether you're selling something or you're just, you're just posting a picture of your family. There's a reason that you're doing both of those things. And 
both of them are tied to, uh, to marketing, but you write this and it's, you, you say, picture yourself at Target, Costco, oh, or any retail store. You take a product to the checkout counter and hand it to the clerk. She rings you up. Then she points to your purchase, locks eyes with you and whispers gravely, I am convinced the devil lives in this. Would you, A, assume this was the beginning of a real life horror film in which you were the main character or B, buy the product and use it for hours each day. <laughs> Apparently we all go with B. And I was like, oh, man, that <laughs> nailed it, as they say. Um, but uh, yeah, no time alone is is not that healthy. Like yesterday, I was editing all day my my fifth novel, and I, so I took mm -hmm. my phone and it went in a separate room. Um, it's just easier not to have it within sight. Um, goes in the other. I don't hear a buzz inadvertently if I forgot to put it on airplane mode or whatever. It's in another room. And I have another computer that's only for writing. It's not my regular one. And the only reason that other computer is connected to, is so that I can then send it to my other computer to then send on to, to Simon and Schuster. Uh, and so it gets updates to, you know, to whatever it needs to, to update, but there's no, I don't use it for anything else, but writing. There's um, no browser or anything on it, there, like internet browser. There is, there is, but there's okay. no, uh, but, uh, that's just because I need to do some updates through that. I think for, for yeah. word, I think anyway. I'd rather not have that on there at all. And I think someone does make a computer now, um, but it looks like almost 1980s technology. It's like a small screen and, uh, but it doesn't, it just allows you to write. Um, yeah. and there's nothing else. It doesn't, you can't put anything else on it. Um, but for me, the screen's not quite right yet. And, but at some point I'll probably do something like that as well. Yeah. Um, in the new house, I have a whole nother room just for writing, run just nice. for reading another one. Just, I mean, it's nice to be able to have that. I haven't had that luxury up to now, but I see because social platforms are really like my storefront essentially. Yeah. Um, yep. And then it's exactly. also a way for me to thank people. Because if you were an author in 1985, the only time you got to thank someone is at a book signing when you shook their hand and said, thank you so much. Well, now I can thank people. Uh, I, I could do it through these social platforms. So I try to use it in a, in a way that's positive, but it's still a digital distraction and it's still taking yeah. time away from me thinking of being alone. But, um, I mean, you talk, people have talked about it before that, uh, that tribe, what was a natural number of people to have in your circle? Uh, and it was what 150 type people was like, the yeah, hundred about 150 max is about the number of people that the, the human brain, um, can process. Cause that's once basically what happens once our, our tribes get over 150 people is now all of a sudden we not only need to remember all the names and faces, but we also need to remember the complex social relationships between those people, right? It's like, oh yeah, Emily hates Jane. So I can't have those two together. Once you get over 150, it, it just starts to sort of uh, throw us off a little bit. It becomes a lot harder to manage. And that seems to be stressful for the human brain. It is. I feel it. And I, you know, I know, uh, and I tried to keep my, uh, the people I follow on social, uh, particularly Instagram at 300. Um, I was like, I'm mm -hmm. going to keep it at 300, but then I saw how, how, how happy it made people when I followed them back. And I'm like, ah, and I, somebody I tried to tell my kids is like, Hey, never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. Like I, yeah. I, I try to do that. I try to, to, to live that way. Um, and, uh, the simple act of, of following someone who does something nice for me, like posting the book and saying how much they liked it, uh, like that sort of a thing. So, um, so I follow a lot more, but I've also noticed that, uh, the anxiety and stress that comes along with managing some of that, even if it's not really managing, it's just on a, a feed. So it sounds so strange to have it cause a little bit of anxiety, but it does for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, obviously so important. And I'm with, I'm with you on the right. Away. Like I, I've had a lot of great, like I've met awesome people on social media. Yeah. 
Right. Um, I think for me, and as you were kind of talking about before, it's really, um, is my cell phone and all these other screens, uh, distracting me from my main goal, which is to write. So like you said, you put your phone in the other room. I do the same. I also, because I write on a computer that has, and I'll have to like pull research, you know, from Mm -hmm. the internet. Um, but if all of a sudden I find myself like, Oh, I somehow ended up on Twitter when I was supposed to be looking up a study. <laughs> I have this thing I'm going to show you because it's at my desk all the time. It's a clicker. So this is the same type of same type of thing um, that you would click to get people into like a concert venue. Uh-huh. Every time I get distracted, I click. Oh wow! And so then I can track that over time because there's this auditory feedback, and I've noticed that by doing that, uh, my distraction level has gone down over time. <laughs> no way! I'm going to do that. I'm getting yeah. a clicker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just because I, because I do have that internet browser on there and sometimes I'm doing research and you're not supposed, you know, people say, uh, don't edit as you write. Well, I do. I edit as I write just because in yeah. my mind, if I continue forward, I have this little bit of bandwidth that in the back of my head is like, Hey, that last chapter, it needs a little work. You didn't, yeah. you need to go back and fix this because if you go too much farther, uh, you don't know how, what you write back then and what research you do for this, even if it's just a paragraph are going to affect what happens here in the future. Uh, and so I'm like, exactly. oh, click. Okay, let's look this up. And then, oh, I need to watch a video on YouTube. So there, but then it feeds me what it knows that I like. I'm like, oh, awesome. James Bond, best movie lines, you know, whatever it is. You know, they, <laughs> yeah, they know me. I'm like, oh, awesome. A cool off-road truck, you know, whatever. They know me. They got the yep. data, uh, which is another thing that, you know, uh, the most value in, in part of this book was this fifth one uh, is really about quantum computing and about how much information is out there, the value of data, who controls that data, how maybe this started by uh, wanting to advertise particularly to, to, to tailor that. But what this has turned into is, yeah, that's profitable, of course, because we have some of the, uh, the most wealthy people in the world are, are, are making money from this. But what they've also found is that this data not just makes them, doesn't just make them extremely wealthy, but now it allows them to control behaviors. So it's much more powerful than just having that bank account and being able to fund what you would like, what you'd like to fund. I mean, there's, it's, it's, uh, but doing that research, having that browser open had definitely led me down a few, few rabbit holes. Um, and, uh, so I do have that open, but I'm gonna use the clicker. That's a, that's a great idea. (laughs) Definitely could use that clicker. It's awesome. Um, and, uh, and you also write about stress and memory. And I really like when you talked about this because it's, it's true. And people who have uh, experienced stressful situations or been in life-threatening situations in the mountains or wherever else, you remember that. And that becomes part of your foundation moving forward to make you uh, better able to deal with those types of situations in the future and increase survivability and then pass those lessons on, hopefully to your children, the next generation, um, that sort of thing. But uh, let's see, you write, uh, you write, I spoke with Douglas Fields, one of the country's leading neuroscientists. He's a senior investigator at the National Institute of Health and runs their department on neuro, uh, neurocryptology, is that right? Neurocytology, neurocytology is. which mm-hmm. is the study of neurons. He told me that when you undergo a new stressful experience, you're transferring short-term memories into long-term memories. What, you, what just happened to you, what it led to, and what you should do next time you face a similar situation. In general, this is because memory is about the future. We retain experiences that may be of survival value at another time. And yes, I mean, then you don't have those types of experiences. Then you run into them later in life and maybe you're responsible for more than just yourself at that point. And so it's 
it's adversely affecting those around you if you do not have these kind of experiences uh, earlier on in life. Um, so yeah. that one, so, and you talk about failure, um, what it was for most of human history, what that meant, like dying, and then what it means today. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So if you think about as humans evolved, right, we would have to do challenging things in nature all the time. I mean, this was part of living, right? So this could be from, um, you know, a big hunt. This could be from having to move from summering to wintering grounds. This could be from like a tiger lurking in the bushes, right? And each time that we would um, complete one of those challenges, we would learn something about ourselves, right? Because failure often meant death from these challenges and we would be thrust into them naturally. And as we would do them, um, we would learn what we were capable of, right? But today, we don't really have those challenges anymore, right? So for the average person, like what is, what is really a challenging thing that comes with a high risk of failure is usually, you know, something that happens in the office. Like, oh, I got to give a talk in front of people, which don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that's not stressful for people, but I'm saying it's kind of a, a different stress and the stakes are a lot lower. Um, so by not being put in positions where we could potentially fail, we also never really have to dig deep and get to a point where we realize what we are capable of, right? We're never put in a position where it's like, oh man, like I didn't know if I could really do this. And I had to figure out my stuff, dig deep and like, wow, I'm more capable than I thought I was. And then once you learn that, you can carry that into your everyday life. And it sort of just expands your potential as a human. So without being tested, um, we just never know what we're capable of. And we also know that um, not having a lot of challenge in your life can lead to some ill mental health impacts. So when you look at um, people uh, who have had challenges in their life, people who have had like the most you know, trauma and challenges, like just so many, just thing after thing, they don't have good mental health. But on the flip side, people who have no challenges have equally bad mental health, right? So there is sort of a sweet spot where having enough challenge in your life, but not way too much. It makes you more mentally resilient, psychologically resilient. You know, you're capable of doing things. You can handle it. It's not overwhelming. Um, and I think more and more today, we're kind of erring on the side of just not enough because it makes sense. Like you don't want to do hard things, right? But we know that hard things is how people grow. Yep. Yeah, but that uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable in the SEAL teams. And I thought about that well, well before I ever joined the the military. Um, and also it, knowing your capabilities and your limitations, these things all help us understand both. And, uh, and, and it is important to understand your, your limitations as well. So you can work on them or whatever you're, you're important to be aware of them. Um, but, uh, we've also equated, like you said, that, that PowerPoint presentation you need to give the boss or the room full of executives or whatever with what 300 years ago might've been death. And now we're, yeah. we've equated these things because that's our stress. That's what we, that's what we know. It's not, uh, you know, going out in the wilderness and dealing with some, a crazy storm that comes in when you know, you have to get, uh, hunt something to bring it back to your family or whatever it, it might be. Well, now it's that PowerPoint presentation, but that's that level of stress is commensurate, which is, uh, yeah. is, is not healthy and also shows the importance of putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, uh, earlier in life so that you're like, oh, I can go give this, this brief and Hey, you know what, if I mess it up, Hey. It's not the end of the world. It's okay. Yeah. I'll learn from it I think and it, move forward. I think those types of experiences can reframe fear for us. It's like if, you know, if you're only exposed to sort of the sort of more trivial things in life, it's like your body is going to fear those like they, they're a real threat. Yeah. But if you put yourself in a position where there actually is some real danger involved, I think that it can sort of 
almost um, give you a, a bigger stress, uh, a bigger threshold for dealing with stress and like, just tell you, you know what, like that PowerPoint presentation, I'm not going to die. Yeah. I feel a bit of nerves, but like, I'm going to be fine. You know? Exactly. Um, so yeah, exactly. I think it's why uh, also why some, why the generation we just talked about that, uh, that went to world war two, that, uh, saw that as their duty and then came back, uh, and got, got back to work did so and didn't, didn't whine, didn't complain, you know, uh, they got back and they built this into, yeah, the most powerful country in the world, but also the most generous country in the world at the same yeah. time. Um, which is always something I, when we talk about having the greatest military, the strongest economy or whatever it was with that generation, I think we also overlooked that, Hey, we, they also built this into, uh, the most compassionate and generous, uh, country in the world as well. But similar to coming back from like Ramadi in 2005, 2006, uh, I tend to now compare things to that. Ah, you know what? No one's, uh, you know, going down, putting an IED outside my front door. I'm not, uh, you know, I was rolling a grenade in here, that sort of thing. Like, it's okay. You know, something that's, uh, so anyway, it's just that, that generation, more of them had a touch point with World War II and had a touch point with, with death and consequences um, than the generations that, uh, that have followed. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, one of the messages from the book is that I think that to get that, the average person has to engineer challenges into their life, right? So are you going to go outside and do some thing that scares you? You know, you're like, oh, I couldn't stay outside for more than two nights in a row in the back country. Like, I could never do that. It's like, well, you also have to realize that, like, were this 2000 years ago, that would be your life. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I think that by sort of engineering these things into our lives, we get uh, more of a buffer zone and we get the point that you're alluding to, like, hey, I'm not in Ramadi with a potentially a grenade outside my door. Like it helps us appreciate all of the amazing comforts that we do have in life. So in the book, I'm not necessarily saying that all the comforts we have in our life are bad. I am saying that when we overuse them, they have serious consequences and we need to balance them out by doing things that are uncomfortable, doing things that challenges mm -hmm. us, doing things that scare us. Cause only by that can we really appreciate just how freaking good we have it in the grand scheme of time and space. If you're living in the U S right. Yep. Yep. That, uh, that appreciation and how that goes hand in hand with gratitude, which also goes hand in hand with mental health and uh, yeah. a positive outlook on life. Um, like all those things are, are intertwined, which is why that adversity I think is so, so important. Um, appreciating these things that we have. Um, yeah. I mean, if, I remember Rogan back in like, gosh, 2006, I think he did a comedy sketch somewhere and I remember hearing it on the radio and it was just when planes first got internet. Uh, and he was like, I don't think I'd even had been on a plane. So it was very early whenever the planes first got internet. And, uh, and he was like, oh, I was on this plane. And the first time, uh, you know, they, they announced on the PA system that you can now get internet, you can log on. And so the guy next to me in first class, he opens his computer and logs on and, and, uh, and it, it's working for like a minute. And then it goes down he slams his computer and is like, Oh, this is BS thing. You know, <laughs> you had this new, and you should be saying, I'm flying in a plane <laughs> over the ground. Like it was just that appreciation oh, right. of, of certain things. And I've always, I've always remembered that. I thought it was pretty, well, pretty I clever. talk a lot about, I talk a lot about how, like, I, I hate flying, right. Cause flying is terrible. It's like you're in this cramped seat. <laughs> it's the unnatural. Too hot. It's yeah. a <laughs> Coffee's terrible. The entertainment's terrible. Bathroom's too cramped. And you know, so on the flight up to, to the Arctic, I'm like, man, this is, this plane ride's awful. Then I go spend a month out there where it's like, you're never 
warm, right? Anytime you want to do anything, you got to, you got to put in effort, uh, to get water. You got to hike down to a stream and carry it all the way back up. If you want to go to the bathroom, you got to hike out on the tundra and carry the rifle with you Mm -hmm. because there's bears out there on and on and on. So when I get back on the plane to come back to Vegas, it's like, what do you think my experience of that plane ride is? Right. It's, um, it's unbelievable. It's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to you. And it's like, I haven't sat in a soft chair for more than a month. I haven't had warm water and it's coming out of a freaking faucet at 30,000 feet in the air. Got unlimited access to pretzels, right? There's coffee. (laughs) I hadn't seen a screen in more than a month. All of a sudden those movies that I thought were crap. I'm like, man, these should be winning all the Academy Awards. (laughs) These are amazing, you know? Um, So I think it is like, you don't really, we don't really have opportunities to really appreciate what we have as much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Alaska a few, a couple months ago and uh, on a moose hunt and uh, it was, I mean, it's so amazing. Once again, there's no digital distractions. I'm out there, whether I'm glassing or I'm back on camp, I was quiet. Oftentimes I was by myself glassing on the other side of a hill from somebody or whatever it was. Um, And I just love that. I love that being alone. I've always loved the the being alone. Um, And you talked about that trip with Donnie that you did. So you did the first one for Men's Health Magazine, and then you go to to get a caribou after caribou for 33 days. Is that right? Yeah. Awesome. So I, I love that. And, and you said, from Donnie said, as our airplanes get smaller, our adventures get bigger. I love that. Yeah. Donnie's awesome. He's totally right yeah. on that. He's, he's an awesome guy. If people haven't, um, people listening, haven't heard of him, look him up. He's, he's a great dude. Yeah. But I think it's even DonnieVincent.com, I think, but uh, regardless, just yep. put it in the browser to pop up and his movies are, are incredible. The way he portrays his, uh, the way he carries himself through life is just, uh, so admirable and just such a, such a great guy. But, uh, so you, you now all of a sudden go from, you know, five days in the back country of Nevada to heading up to the Arctic circle with, uh, Donnie Vincent uh, for 33 days. What did you do to prepare for that? Well, I mean, a lot is the answer. (laughs) So I did, uh, you know, having worked at men's health, I was relatively fit, but I was, um, I don't think I was physically prepared for all the, the carrying. So I did a lot of rucking to prepare, um, a lot of stuff just to make sure that it didn't blow a joint, right? Like even just like I've had bad ankles my entire life from playing basketball. So it's like, I had to make sure those things are solid. Cause if I roll an ankle out there, like we got a problem, yeah. right? Um, did a lot of like research on the area, um, did a lot of research on gear systems, kind of made sure everything was dialed in. Um, I think one of the things that I would have changed in my preparation is that, uh, I had been training so much and, you know, trying to eat relatively healthy that I went in at like a buck 70 and I'm six one. Mm. And that was probably, I was pretty lean mm. too. You know, I probably would have, should have gained like 10 pounds in fat before I left. Cause I ended up losing 10 pounds and wow. walking out of there at like one sixty. Wow. Um, which when, you know, after we, um, after I killed the caribou, we had to ruck with that thing across the the tundra for five miles. And the thing was like a hundred and I don't know, 110 pounds, yeah. which military, I mean, relative to some of the loads you guys carry in the military is like, eh, whatever. Well, um, it's a different kind of weight though. Like, uh, having yeah. that, like a hind quarter or something in your pack, that's not cause you know, the military we can, or if you're a backpacker or whatever, I mean, you can pack your stuff, you get it all nice and tight. You dial in your system, you know, where weight goes, where, when you tie that, right, put this meat in a sack, like on your back, like that's a different kind of weight, just however, for whatever that whatever reason that is, I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's different. And it's even different than taking, you know, a perfectly symmetrical 45 pound plate and putting it in a backpack for training. It's different yep. than taking, and let's say you took, take two of those and put those on your back for training. 
it's different than putting that same amount of weight in some weird hindquarter and whatever else stuff that you have stuffed in your bag. It's just a different kind of weight. And I don't know what that, what, what yeah. that means, but, uh, but it is, that's a truth. Yeah. I, yeah, I can agree. I mean, I definitely, I still for training will, will, you know, ruck with pretty heavy and it, it definitely does feel heavier. It felt heavier out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a ton of training preparation went into it, but, but it was awesome too, because it kind of, I think, when you challenge yourself with something big, it gives, um, what you're doing a purpose, right? So a lot of time, I mean, think of something like exercise. It's like most people just kind of do it to go through the motions, right? Whereas if you, if you pick something you're going to do, whether it's like, say you're going to do like, I'm going to do a rim to rim to rim run, or I'm going to go up on this crazy backcountry hunt, or I'm going to do this, um, you know, Leadville 100, like all of a sudden now your training has purpose Mm -hmm. and there's like a very specific goal. And that also, you know, applied to me with like what I had to do to get ready intellectually. So it was a lot of like reading and, and, and learning. And I found that super rewarding. And then you also had to wrap your head around something that for most of human history would have been a very natural thing, which is the hunt itself. And right. I think you went up there with a tag, but you still were a little bit uncertain uh, if you were going to either want to or be able to press that trigger when you had a living, breathing animal in your sights. Um, what was that experience like? Yeah, I didn't, I honestly didn't know if I was going to hunt and I wasn't planning on it initially because, you know, I'm a journalist. And so we're like, you know, I'm not supposed to get involved in the story, but I honestly think I was just telling myself that because I didn't want to cross that emotional barrier. Right. But you've eaten hamburgers before and you're like, like there's that whole eat meat eat meat every single day. Right. (laughs) It's like meat just kind of appears. It's just part, it's a part of life. You just have meat. It's just there. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I was saying I had, I had thought I didn't want to hunt and I was, I think I was kind of using the, the line that, Oh, I'm a journalist. I don't participate in the story. And Donnie told me, you know, I think we'll, you'll understand why we come out here and do this if you actually hunt. And so I trusted them on that. And we had been, you know, looking for a caribou for a while. We're looking for an, an older animal. And finally we got in a position and like, I'd been carrying this freaking rifle around the tundra for, you know, like weeks or whatever. And even then I'm like, I don't, I don't actually have to do this if I don't want to, you know? And, uh, we ended up getting in a position where I did this, this sort of ridge is like knob thing. Um, we might be in good position. So we kind of book it over and, you know, come down and on the tundra and we like belly crawl in for hundreds of yards. And, and he was right. We were I'm like laying there, you know, I got my endoscope, he's in the binoculars and you just see these antlers appear at the apex of this like knob. It was just like, Oh my God, you know, like just amazing animals. And, uh, <clears throat> they started coming in. There's probably about 30 of them. And there was one that, uh, his antlers were kind of hitching as he walked and he had a limp. Right. So he's, he'd been injured somehow and he's clearly very old. And so I decided like, all right, I'm going to do this. And, um, he ended up getting in position, you know, they're kind of, it was, it was kind of crazy because he kept going in and out of the herd, you know, it's hard to keep him in the site. And, uh, but eventually the herd kind of parted and he was just right there. And I pulled the trigger once, pull it twice. And as I write in the book, it's like the animal goes down and my initial reaction is it's not positive. It's like, holy shit, what have you done? Right? Like there's no coming back from this. Like you can't, you just killed like a living creature. And I was, I was pretty bent up about that, you know, and especially as we went and 
and sort of came upon it and just seeing it like lying in the tundra was just like, I mean, it's kind of gut wrenching, you know? Um, but what was interesting is that once we started breaking it down, my mind really shifted because then I could see it. Like it started to look like meat, mm. right? It wasn't this animal that was like, you know, Bambi in the Disney show or like something you see at a petting zoo type of thing or in the zoo. It was like, this is meat. And so then I had this realization, like, dude, you eat meat like every single day. And never once have you felt a single iota of emotion mm-hmm. or thought about the animal and all that, like anything you're feeling right now. And so that was an eye opener, you know, because it made me um, not just appreciate that meat so much more, but also all the meat I eat, mm-hmm. the food system as a whole, right? Like there's a, there's a pretty heavy emotional um, burden that goes into killing an animal so you can have food, but it's a necessary part of the life cycle. And I think now we are very removed from that form of discomfort and for good reason. And you look at how our food is presented and talked about in grocery stores. It's like it's presented in such a way that you don't really know that the, you know, most of it is boneless. We also have euphemistic words for it's, you know, we we don't talk about it in terms of like anatomy. We have cuts like, oh, ribeye, right? Mm. It's like, well, what's a ribeye? That's not a muscle, right? It's like a, it's a different thing. Um, So, I mean, it was a experience that was heavy, but very necessary. And one that I really appreciate. Yeah. It was interesting. I was talking, I was talking not too long ago. I was talking about my moose hunt, uh, posted a couple pictures or whatever. And, uh, someone jumps on there and, and, uh, says something derogatory, you know, and I never respond to those because I want to waste bandwidth on the the negative and you know, you're not going to, it's just not productive to, uh, it's much more productive to just have a conversation with someone, uh, rather than, uh, respond back and forth on essentially a text message that's public. Uh, that's just not <laughs> a good, uh, venue or platform for a productive, positive discussion. Um, but, uh, he said something about, about hunting, you know, super negative about me or whatever. And I was like, Oh, it's interesting. This guy's being excessively mean. And so I clicked on it and he's like, his first picture is him holding up a fish like this. You know, there's no other, there's no other hunting pictures, but there's, you know, he's a, a dead fish in his hand. I'm like, right. Okay, it just went on, but I, that stuck with me. You know, I do remember those. Uh, most of most of the negative ones yeah. like hit, hit me, and then I don't think about them anymore. Uh, yeah, you want to respond, but you don't. But then, like a day later, I've totally forgotten about it. But that one was yeah. just so ridiculous. Like you're holding up a dead animal, and then you said something about anyway. R- regardless, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think that people are very disconnected. You know, and. Um, we eat so much meat now in the grand scheme of history, you know, it's like meat used to be really scarce. And like, I mean, this is why when we would hunt in the past, it was like, it was a, we'd have a massive celebration Mm -hmm. over getting that meat because it was hard to come by. And now it's just like triple burgers for, you know, $4 from any drive-through, which look, I'm not saying that's a bad problem to have in the grand scheme of history, like for nearly all of life, it was a struggle to get enough calories, to get enough nutrients. This is a good problem to have, but at the same time, it is a problem where now we have so much of it that it's causing health problems, but also just like the disconnect there, I think, um, has some repercussions that aren't, that aren't good. And we waste a lot too. We waste a ton of meat. And I think a lot of that comes from not having to put in the work to get it other than stopping by the grocery stores, you're throwing in Cheetos and fruit loops and whatever else, and then grabbing a couple, you know, steaks that are wrapped in cellophane, um, that are super clean and you're 
tossing it in the cart and driving your kid and whatever else. Like you don't have that appreciation for it because you haven't put in the work. Oh yeah. Maybe you've worked for the money to buy that, but there's that disconnect between that living, breathing animal, uh, that you put down, that you, uh, uh, feel dressed, that you butcher, that you carry out, that you then put in your freezer and then that you eat with your family, um, and provided them sustenance. Uh, if we don't do that, then we waste a ton. I think there was a study a few years ago about just how much meat we waste in the United States. And when you're about eating- a third, yeah, About a third of, of uh, the calories we produce as a country get wasted. It's um, incredible. So, which is crazy. And I know for me after hunting, like I never waste meat That's anymore. That's right. Like ever, mm-hmm. ever. That's <laughs> like, right. It'll be, you know, if I have meat that's going to go bad, it's like, okay, for breakfast, it looks like we're having some random thing you would never normally eat for breakfast or whatever it is, you know? So- um, and I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. And I think, you know, for me, at least I, I hope that, you know, people can adopt that without having to, to hunt. Cause I know that it is, there's a big barrier to entry in the sport, you know, and it can be expensive. And, um, but I think for me, like just having that experience really cemented it for me. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, there, there can be barriers. It all, I think a lot of it depends on where you, where you live. If you're obviously more, uh, if you're in the middle of a big city and don't know anyone that hunts and have to leave that city to go someplace to hunt, uh, figure out the laws and regulations around that. Um, it can be a little bit daunting uh, rather than, yeah. Hey, if you're in the country and you know someone that goes out and, and hunts and they've given you meat before and you're interested in it, it's, it's just a lot. And, and you can drive uh, a half hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is. Um, it's uh, it's a lot different than having to board a plane out of New York City and fly someplace um, and figure figure all that out. Um, yeah. There's less there's less hoops to jump through if you're already essentially in the location that uh, that you're going to going to hunt. Um, yeah, and I have a I have a friend who's a um, a food writer. She writes about agriculture. Her name's Tamar uh, Haspel. She's one of the best food writers uh, going now, in my opinion. And she makes the argument that. Um, kids as a field trip should be taken to a slaughterhouse yes. to see, to see what that's like. I mean, like schools should, <laughs> schools should be like doing this thing. Cause it would give a lot more appreciation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The people that are, are anti-hunting. And I think you talk about this in the book about people in large cities uh, that have the most disconnect are also those who are typically the most uh, adamantly against people that go out and hunt and put their own food on the table for whatever reason, um, yep. in between bites of a cheeseburger or, or, or whatever else. So, um, and that's a disconnect for, for our country. That's a, that's a divisive point, uh, amongst many, many others that we have to contend with as a, as a nation, when you have big population centers that are dictating to someone in the country, uh, that hey, they can't go out and take a deer and put it on the family's table, um, because they're against it because of maybe a moral vanity. They don't even know Anyway, uh, yeah. and a I'm lot of this you. can be alleviated, I think, through reading again, the study of history, uh, appreciating how we got to this point when you could live in a large city and go down and have a tea and talk to your friend and whatever else. Like, we, that wasn't always the case. Uh, yeah. a, a very small part of human history that you uh, could outsource your protection through a police force or a military and outsource how you fed yourself and your family. That's a tiny sliver of, of human history. Um, oh, yeah. but it was, uh, it, you have a very cool quote in here. Um, and you talk about, uh, uh, Edward Abbey and Thoreau here. And you say, uh, when you're talking about, about hunting, uh, Thoreau was also aware of the great responsibility embedded in hunting. Again, in Walden, he wrote that it must be done in earnest. 
He gave no definition of in earnest, but Edward Abbey later interpreted Thoreau's in earnest to mean done in a spirit of respect, reverence, and gratitude. And I love that because it, it doesn't just apply to, to hunting. I think it can apply to a, quite a few different things in, in life. But um, I think if, if all hunters or those that uh, are thinking about going afield, um, look at hunting in those terms and as the way to go about doing it and taking a life um, in earnest is a really good way to, to, um, to frame it. Yeah. Just like living life in general. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do it with respect, do it with gratitude. I mean, that's the way. And yeah, and you talk about coming home, like we just talked about and having that warm water and having that soft bed and appreciating it rather than having it just be these things that uh, are always there and always going to be there. Maybe, maybe not. And that's where that, uh, dealing with adversity, uh, throughout your life comes, uh, comes into, into play. Um, and you also talk about something in here, uh, and am I saying it right? Biophilia hypothesis. Is that right? By, uh, yeah. biologist mm-hmm. E.O. Wilson. Um, he talks about our ingrained call to be in nature. And that's one of the things that gives me hope for the future because we have these things that are a natural part of us. And a lot of it uh, draws us back to being alone for a little bit each day, away from these devices to think through issues and problems, just daydream for general mental mental health. Uh, and you talk about something that I read about somewhere not too long ago, the forest bathing in Japan, going out for 15 minutes a day, just being alone. I mean, how many people just are alone without their device for 15 minutes a day? It's so easy and and not many people. And that's because it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Again, it's like we, that people get FOMO when they get away from their phone. And like, (laughs) you know, I get it. There's, there's evolutionary reasons for all this. Like the whole, you know, the theme of the book is I talk about is that, you know, for nearly all of time doing the next most comfortable thing that kept us alive, right? Our drive to always be comfortable. It told us don't move any more than you have to because calories are at a premium and we don't want to starve to death because you got like a running hobby, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If food was around, it told us to eat as much of it as possible because we may not have, we may go through a 24 hour stint where there wasn't food around, right? You want to put on fat so you can survive. Um, Told us to focus on any negative attention that came our way. So this made sense because it was often a survival threat. Mm -hmm. Now think about what does the media tend to run? It tends to run stories about negative stuff and it captures our attention, even though the world over time is getting better, right? And so on and on and on. So this drive that we always have to be comfortable, it no longer serves us in a lot of ways. So it's figuring out, so in the book really, you know, the thesis is like, here are these fundamental forms of discomfort that we evolved facing that we no longer do. And here are the repercussions of that. And here's how you can weave discomfort back into your life. Yeah, well, it's, it's fantastic book. And I think, uh, I'm giving this after we do this podcast, I'm gonna give it to my daughter, uh, as well. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's so great for kids to read these things and you know, to normalize some discomfort and, uh, and the importance of being able to deal with failure and take those hits and keep moving forward. Cause that's life. Um, but you also write, have, have this quote from John, John Muir, who in uh, 1901 said, uh, nerve shaken over civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home. That wilderness is necessary and that that mountain parks and reservations are useful not only as fountains of timber and irrigating rivers, but as fountains of life. So, so true. Um, and when we talked about Outward Bound earlier, um, 
and you talk about Outward Bound in the book a little bit, but uh, the history of Outward Bound is fascinating. I don't think they talk about it too much these days, but it's it's uh, connected to the lead up and into World War II, where we had sailors in the North Atlantic getting torpedoed, and they found that a lot of these older ones were the ones that were surviving, and the ones that were younger and fitter, uh, who had all this reason to live, were tended to be the ones that were succumbing to this cold uh, and uh, th- these situations, and they thought, whoa, maybe these older people are the ones that have faced adversity in life and uh, can deal with these situations. That was one of the one of the uh, the main reasons that Outward Bound was started um, That's in, crazy. in the UK. Yeah, it has a has a martial beginning. Um, I love it. They definitely don't talk about too much anymore. Interestingly enough, um, and you talk about uh, nutrition uh, in this book as well, and you did a lot of research into that. Um, what did you learn about the importance of of, of being hungry or uh, nutrition in general? And there's, an, there's another great quote in here. You say, uh, Dr. Jason Fung, who told you, uh, think about a hungry wolf versus a lion who just ate. Which one is more focused? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, so in the book, I argue that, you know, we're, we're not really ever hungry for extended periods of time anymore. And uh, you look at why people eat now, like 80% of the time, it's for a reason other than true physiological hunger. And that 80% tracks about with the number of percentage of people in the US who are either overweight or obese, right? So food has essentially become kind of a widget. We eat because we're stressed. We eat because we got nothing to do. We eat because of a certain time on the clock. And we're also eating food that is inherently comfort food, yeah. right? It's packed with calories and tastes great, textures, all this kind of stuff. Um, but we know that the body tends to, when you go through ex- extended periods of hunger, it doesn't like burn. It, it needs to essentially burn itself for fuel, keep you alive. Right. And it doesn't burn its finest cells, right? It tends to cull the herd. It picks like cells that are dying, that are damaged, that aren't as useful. And that seems to have some health benefits because you're sort of like your body's taking out the trash. So I talk a lot about how you know, we have this diet culture nowadays where there's like 50 million diets you can try and they all have, you know, some food in them that's, oh, this is the reason you're fat and this food is going to be your savior. But when you look at it, it's like they all work by the same mechanism. You just, you have to eat less than you burn, right? And in doing that, you're going to be hungry. That is why people fail on diets. It's because they get to a certain point where their body starts to go, oh, uh oh, Mm. I don't think we should be losing weight. Because in the past, losing weight was bad, right? It was bad for your survival. So your body sort of ramps up its hunger signals and it has all these amazing mechanisms that used to keep us alive in the past. But now when we try and lose weight, it doesn't serve us. So really the key to losing weight is starting to become comfortable with the discomfort of hunger. Like just realizing you're going to have to go through it, but you're going to come out on the other end. Okay. And also in doing that, um, your body, you know, if you think about it in the past, like with that quote, you, you don't actually shut down and slow down when you're hungry because like you needed the extra boost of energy in the past and that focus. So you can actually use that um, in a work capacity setting. Like a lot of people who will, you know, not eat breakfast, they tend to be more focused um, up until lunch than people who eat a big breakfast and then go right into work. Oh, interesting. Maybe I should give that a, sometimes I do that, but it's not because I'm trying to, it's just because there's so much to do. I just grab coffee and I'm going to be like, I'm just going to sit down for, just do this thing for 10 minutes and I'm going to go make a couple eggs or whatever. And then that two minutes or 10 minutes turns into two hours or three, three hours. hours. I'm like, yeah. oh man, I haven't eaten. And then it becomes a, 
brunch. Um, (laughs) that's just how it goes. Uh, and we talked about it a little bit, but that, uh, that city country gap that exists in, in the country. And you talk about uh, a little bit of how that might not be necessarily a very good thing for us as a nation. Yeah. You, yeah. You look at the research on, um, so it goes back to that 150 number we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And, um, this research basically found that the lower the population density of a place, um, the more likely people are to be happy. So you look at depression rates and the most depressed people tend to be in the most densely populated cities. Like they did this analysis of 318 cities in the US and New York was dead last because it's the most population dense. And it seems that the human brain really likes to have not be you know, packed with people and buildings and you know, pavement and all this kind of stuff. Um, we like fewer, fewer interactions with people, but more um, genuine interactions, mm-hmm. I would say, right? Um, we also know that people do well when they're exposed to nature and there's different like levels and times of nature that um, lead to different benefits in the human brain. And so I think that's kind of a long way of saying the takeaway is, is, you know, spend more time outside with a couple of people you love and even alone. The alone part is, is so key being comfortable being alone. Um, it was something that was just natural for, for me, but for our, our kids growing up with these digital distractions, they're never really alone. Um, like I was alone reading and reading books in my room or being going to outside, reading a book outside. Like I was alone, but I was learning and I was having these experiences through the pages of a good book. Um, so I, I yeah, that's, some, that's what I'd encourage everybody to do. I try to do it as many, as often as I possibly can just encourage people to get it, put those devices aside and get into the pages of a good book. You, yeah. it's a, it, it, it will be time well spent. For yeah. Sure. And you hear, like you hear a lot of, um, you know, stuff now about how loneliness is so bad for us. That is true. But there is a difference between loneliness and solitude. Loneliness is I want to be around people, but I just, I can't be around anyone. Like I I don't have any friends. I don't have any family, whatever. Solitude is being, is selecting to have time alone for yourself to just sort of think about things, to sort of learn more about yourself, to have some time to just like relax and like not have this, all this outward stimulation. And so, you know, I think we, we do need a lot more time and solitude and to leverage that. And you look at a lot of, um, you know, some of the best thinkers in history, like Abraham Lincoln, like Steve Jobs, like on and on and on, all these people would leverage these extended times in solitude to do a lot of work, to sort of do a lot of thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I've never felt lonely being alone, if that makes sense. I think there are probably a lot of lonely people living in big cities where they have somebody very close by, even if it's across a wall in an apartment or whatever it it might be, or maybe they're out on the street surrounded by thousands of people and they still feel lonely. Um, So I think that's definitely a difference, uh, feeling lonely, uh, having that be a negative thing, than being alone and appreciating that time to think. Um, Yeah. And there's also part of your book, in part four of your book, uh, it's subtitled, uh, Think About Your Death Every Day, uh, which is a very stoic thing to to do. Um, and, uh, for whatever reason, I've thought about death a lot over the course of my life, but, uh, talk about what you learned about, uh, death and the importance of thinking about death and framing your life and your path forward. Yeah. So after killing the caribou, um, it just got me thinking about the life cycle and how for one thing to live on, another has to die. And, you know, (laughs) I'm not excluded from that. (laughs) None of us are. 
And um, it sort of got me thinking about how in the U.S., like we don't really think about death or face death. You know, after someone dies, we make them look as alive as possible. And then we have a funeral and we, you know, put them in the ground. And then we're told to stay busy, take our mind off it. Even our food system, as we've talked about, doesn't remind us that our meat came from a living animal. And um, so I wanted to know how other cultures maybe think about it. And so I traveled to Bhutan, which is um, right near Nepal. And death is woven into the culture there. So funerals, for example, are like this 21-day event. Um, A lot of their art and cultural stuff centers around death. There's even these like after someone dies, they're cremated and their uh, ashes are mixed with this clay and they're formed in these little pyramids. And pyramids are everywhere, all over the country, like windowsills. You come around a bend in the road, there's a bunch of these pyramids. And the citizens are instructed to think about death at least once a day. And the reason for this is because they are um, uh, a Buddhist nation and they've tended to take the idea of um, impermanence in Buddhism kind of to a, to a larger level. And so I traveled there and I met with a guy who's really high up in the Buddhist faith. He's a Kempo. And I mean, he's, you know, I'm like this gangly Western writer and we have to take this car up this like mountain cliff road to this monastery that's hanging off a cliff. And this guy's in this like shack and, there's no like running water electricity. And I go in and he's like in his orange robes, like meditating to the, to the Buddha. And it was just like, Holy hell, this is, this is a trip, you know? (laughs) Um, But I talked to him for a long time and he, you know, he sort of explained it like this, Uh, pretend you're walking on a trail. Okay. And at the end of this trail is a cliff. Well, the catch is that the cliff is death. And right now we are all walking on that trail, right? Like, well, don't you don't you want to know that there's a cliff at the end of this trail? Right. In the US, you guys don't want to know about the cliff, but in Bhutan, we want to know about the cliff because that changes how we're going to walk the trail, what we're going to pay attention to, the conversations we're going to have with the people that were on the trail. So he says that um, you know, by considering your own death, your own impermanence, it can change your behavior. Because if you realize this ride is going to end, you're probably going to enjoy it. You're probably going to prioritize different things, right? You may not, you may prioritize more family time or more experiences over, you know, buying that new car or that new watch you really want. And um, when they do research in the U.S. about this, they find that uh, people who think about their death tend to end up being happier. So it changes your behavior in such a way that people end up happier. And so this is one of those, one of those strange findings where you hear about it at first and it sounds like this kind of mystical thing that's like, you know, embedded in this ancient religion and then gets followed up by research in the U S and you're like, Oh yeah, the ancients had it right all the whole time. <laughs> yeah. No, and it, it wasn't just that culture either. It's, it's, it's been other cultures throughout time as well. Um, yeah. And that's what, what you write here, this Eastern Washington university study, um, which is fat tend to recognize that, uh, what might be and what, and become more grateful for the life that they're experiencing, uh, in thinking about death, uh, on a, on a daily basis. I mean, obviously you don't want to be all consuming, but it will change the decisions that you make, what you prioritize, which is, uh, beneficial to, to everyone around you, not just, uh, not just yourself to your, to your circle. Um, yeah. and you know, you talk about how we do measure things probably by money rather than, um, and, and, and I thought, I think about this a lot. And I thought about when I was reading your, your book as well, uh, in how 
like for me, we have a special needs middle child, which means that I need to provide for him for a lifetime of full-time care. So it's about more than just me. It's about more than just getting our children to age 18. Um, so there is this financial component that, uh, that is a driver, uh, for sure. Um, but, uh, but measuring things by money, I think is different. And the way I measure things these days is about how present I am with the ones that I love, uh, being present with them when I am physically present with them, uh, which as a writer is oftentimes uh, difficult because you're thinking you're solving a problem that you on the written page that you were trying to figure out a couple hours earlier and you're with your family, but you're really solving this problem because things are sinking in because you've now given it a couple hours to soak in or whatever it might be. So I really have to make a conscious effort to put that stuff aside and, and be present rather than working on that something that, uh, cause it's a year long process to write, you know, as you know, one of these, one of these, a book or more, you know, depending on what you're. Yeah, man. You're it's fun to talk to you because we suffer from the same abnormalities <laughs> of being a writer. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why so many of them, uh, you know, over time, when you study some of these guys they they can go a little crazy and, and hit the bottle a little hard or whatever it might, uh, it might be, um, because they're solving those problems. Uh, the written page, yeah. even though they're not in front of that typewriter or uh, they're not with pen in hand, but they're still thinking about it. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. There's a, there's a, there's a lot to it. So I have to, at least I can recognize it and, uh, and take active steps to, <laughs> to correct some of my, my behaviors. Um, but uh, you also write a book called the, the fine art of living and manifesting a peaceful death as part of your, uh, your research. Uh, and then there's the Spetton book of living, living and dying. Um and part of that reads, uh, talks about a Western ch a checklist living uh, that consists of cramming our lives with compulsive activity so that there's no time at all to confront the real issues, um, which uh, I think is something that is very detrimental to our society going forward because we're certainly not getting less dependent on all these devices that we've, that we've talked about. It's very becoming even more and more a part of our lives. So it's going to take people recognizing that uh, this might not be healthy for them personally, but also for society as a whole and taking active steps to, uh, to these devices that are addictive and are necessary for a lot of our businesses now as well. So there's, there's all these different, different facets to it. So it's certainly not an easy thing. Um, but, uh, but confronting the real issues is, uh, is what, uh, what I, what I took away from that. So in writing about that chapter and about death and, and taking this trip that you took and meeting these people and, and reading these different books, um, how did that affect what you're, how you're living your life now? Um, I mean, I would say for one, I'm way more grateful for everything we have. You know, I think it's really easy to take how amazing life is for granted. It's just like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, this is how it is. But it's like <laughs> when I've, by diving into the research and going on all these, all these crazy, um, travels for this book, it's just like, oh my God, like life today is amazing. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think we missed sight of that. So there's a ton of gratitude that I have now. Um, I also do things as simple as like, I take a 20 minute walk outside every day without my cell phone. Cause it's an amazing period to think and just be completely removed, but also have some time outside, which, you know, I talk about in the book, a lot of the research around why that's so great. And like these specific doses of time you need in nature. Um, I've changed how I approach exercise too. I write in the book a lot about, um, rucking and how the human body really evolved to carry weight, right? We're only good at two things as animals running, long distances, slowly in the heat and carrying weight. We're the only animals that can really carry weight. And, um, that seems to be uniquely good for us. So that, um, yeah, 10 more time outside 
trying to um, try and just take on challenges and like even just deferring to like, don't always do the next easy thing. As much as my, you know, our lizard brains are like, do the comfortable thing, do the easy thing. Like, no, that's not where you're going to get a payoff and long-term fulfillment. And um, man, I could go on and on, but those are a few things. Yeah, no, it's all so fantastic. And the fitness side, especially when you're talking about the, uh, uh, the weight that we carry, you talk about the, the military and how that's evolved over time, how much weight we carry. Uh, and it's interesting in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we'd see the enemy, obviously they're not carrying as much weight as we are. They don't have to have these satellite radios that are built around batteries that were probably also the same batteries used in, in Vietnam, even though we've had all these technological advances over the years. Um, and why is that? Whose district makes the battery? Like there's all these things to, to, to yeah. think about that are weighing us, us down. I think we're probably better at it now, but, um, but you write about this too. You say, and I love this this sentence here. You say, "At the tip, and it's and it's from uh, some from someone that you interview. It says, at the tip of the spear in the U.S., we have the fittest soldiers who ever existed. At the opposite end, we have the most unfit citizenry." And he said, "That is to our detriment and to the detriment of America." And uh, once again, there's that that city country divide. Um, there's that uh, that the divide between people who appreciate where their meat comes from uh, and those who sometimes take active steps to keep them from doing that. Um, so, so the, the exercise and the fitness part of all this was, was fascinating as well. Particularly, uh, there's a book over on the shelf over there. Uh, something about it's a couple rows back about the mobility of a nation, I think is part of the, part of the title. Um, oh, yeah. and how much, I don't forget the exact SLA Marshall, maybe, but anyway, yep. it's, uh, it, how important it is to be able to have, to, to, yeah, carry some weight, but also to be able to, uh, move effectively and efficiently with that weight. Um, which, uh, is kind of what a lot of the fitness programs that we all gravitated towards really, uh, after nine 11, um, in particular, rather than just going into the gym and trying to look like, uh, you know, some of the eighties action heroes, yeah. um, it became a little, a little different when you were, when, when there was a lot more, uh, on the line. Um, but uh, can you talk about the AMA, the AMA? Is my, am I saying that right? The the Sea Women of Japan, oh, yeah. uh, them uh, Sherpas, and then this culture in in Iceland. Um, like, what do you learn from those uh, different uh, subsets of cultures and, and people? Yeah. So uh, this section of the book, I kind of look at like what are some cultures that have these practices that are seemingly you know really uncomfortable, and and what has that done for them? So with the AMA, these are this is a group of women live on the coast of Japan and uh, Korea. And for their living, they dive into the ocean and they will, you know, search for food, et cetera, at the bottom of the ocean. So they'll do dives that are, I think, as, as deep as like 20, 20 feet or whatever. Uh, but in the winter, the ocean is like really cold, <laughs> like really cold. And they spend, spend their days in it, right? Like they'll dive down and they'll spend five, 10, 15 minutes in it, come up in the boat, warm up, and they're just doing this all day. And so, you know, there's that, there's that kind of cliche that your grandma told you, like, if you get cold, you're going to catch a cold. Um, well, it turns out that's not the case. So this was, this is a research done, which is fascinating in the sixties. Um, and the reason they started doing this research was actually um, to learn um, information about how to train seal divers. And so uh, they basically found that these women had lower rates of uh, disease, like every single marker they studied, um, whether that was like body fat content, they had higher fitness, they, had, they were less likely to catch a cold, they had just a lot more robust systems um, compared to the people who didn't expose themselves in the cold uh, in their same village who lived the exact same lifestyle, except for they didn't ever get cold, right? Um, and so I think that what this told us is that as a sort of backup, 
is that you know your body evolved all these amazing mechanisms to keep your to regulate your internal temperature. When you're too hot, certain things kick on to cool you down. When you're too cold, certain things kick on to warm you up. And nowadays, the average person spends 93% of their time indoors at 72 degrees. So these systems never really get activated, right? And so uh, a lot of the research is indicating that spending time in cold, spending, getting your body really heated up um, can be can be uniquely good for us and sort of this sort of this new world of health that we haven't necessarily, that we're just kind of learning about, but we know uh, can be beneficial with, with the Sherpa. So these guys are fascinating because, so this is a, a group of people um, in Nepal and they tend to their jobs uh, as a career, they tend to be uh, mountain porters. So they will, you know, carry people's stuff up when they um, try to summit Everest or whatever. And these guys are naturally just like really, really good up there. Like they're just uh, like all the best climbers are Sherpas and what they what scientists have found is that uh, they have this gene. And what's paradoxical paradoxical about these people is that they're amazing climbers at altitude, like twenty thousand feet or above, eighteen thousand feet or above. And so you would think that, like, oh, their endurance must be off the chart if you put them in a marathon. And like, I think people were actually like, yeah, we should get Sherpas into marathoning because they'll probably kill it. Well, it turns out they're they're basically average. Mm. And what they found is they have this crazy gene that once they get above a certain altitude, this gene starts to express itself and it lets them use oxygen a lot more efficiently. So it's almost like the average person goes into altitude and we are trying to suck down oxygen. We can't use it well. What happens with them is they get up there and their body converts this thing that uses what little oxygen they have a lot more efficiently. Mm. It's like a flower that gets exposed to the sun and it sort of blooms. Um, so that, um, now researchers are doing some work on that gene to see if we can use it, um, you know, maybe for some sort of pill or something for, for humans in the future uh, to help us use oxygen more efficiently. But then the, the Iceland research is fascinating because the men in Iceland live longer than any other men on earth. And the, the short answer of why they think this is, is that you know, Iceland was settled by uh, Vikings only about a thousand years ago. So it was this totally desolate, terrible island to live on because it's terrible. It's like flat. It's freezing cold. There's all these winds like no one would ever want to live there. And nothing did until these Vikings um, came along. They had they swung by Ireland. They kidnapped all these women. They go settle Iceland. And they quickly find it's terrible to live there. Right. So the population <laughs> it like doesn't grow for like hundreds and hundreds of years as Europe is like has grown tenfold. Iceland is still at the same population it had been at only until about the last uh, 100, 200 years. And uh, what's happened over time, they think, is that because it was so uncomfortable to live there, everything took work, it was always too cold, uh, just really rough lifestyle and almost like cold the herd. And what ended up happening is the people who were sort of survivors and a little bit tougher than everyone else, those people managed to live on and spread their genes while people who weren't quite as tough perished. So they had one of the highest uh, infant mortality rates ever recorded by science. Uh, it was like 600 something deaths per whatever births, which is just insane. Um, but over time, it's led to this population that's a lot more robust and seemingly uh, has led them to live longer. No kidding. Yeah, I want to spend some more time in Iceland. I've landed there twice um, to refuel emergency landing or something. Um, but I went, in high school, I wanted to circumnavigate it in a kayak. 
That was always something oh, I wanted cool. to do. Yeah. So it's still on my list. My wife rolls her eyes every time I mention it. Um, so I do mention it maybe once a year or so, maybe twice, uh, for whatever reason, that was just something I wanted to, wanted to do. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll get to it at some point. Um, but, uh, going back to hunting really quick, do you, are you going to be hunting again? Is it, uh, is it something that you want to do to continue to put food in your freezer or you want to explore those, those feelings and emotions behind it a little more, or is it, uh, to continue to appreciate where things come from or what's uh, what's your relationship going forward with that, uh, that draw of the hunt essentially? Yeah, I'm definitely going to keep hunting. I mean, I hunted, uh, this fall in Utah for elk and it was, you know, it's just one of those things where I'm like, I definitely want this to be a part of my life, um, moving forward just for the experience of that extended time in nature, but also that reminder of, you know, the meat that we eat comes with a heavy burden. And so like to be able to, to experience that, I think is an important thing uh, for me as a human and to be able to fill my freezer with like just amazing meat and have that all year round to share with family and friends, I think is, is pretty rewarding. So I'm going to definitely keep that behavior up. Yeah. And, and you know, putting that uh, hindquarter on your back or whatever it is and hiking out of a, a Canyon, um, man, that's uh, like we talked about earlier, that's some different kind of weight and that's uh yeah. Uh, you'll remember those. You'll remember hiking that meat out. That's for sure. I got yeah, an elk amen. in the backcountry in uh, New Mexico years ago and, you know, hundred pounds, 110, 115, you know, where we loaded it up with uh, to hike down to a place. It was like a mile, maybe a mile and a half or something like that, but multiple trips back and forth, public land. It ended up it was a really old bull. Um, but uh, I remember that. Like I remember hiking out with that thing the same way I remember some experiences in buds uh, in seal training, like being there on the beach on the verge of hypothermia, getting yelled at, people quitting in droves. Like I put those in the same category in my mind. Like I remember distinctly remember <laughs> both of those uh, experiences as being uh, you know not quite so comfortable. Uh, and speaking of speaking of seal training, really quick, uh, Hell Week, you know, we get eighty percent of our attrition throughout the whole thing, but most of it occurs during Hell Week, and a lot of that is because of the cold. And because people's minds are the, in those first few hours, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be freezing on the verge of hypothermia for the next five days. Uh, I don't think I can do this. I'm going to be warm. And it's very easy to be warm again. All you have to do is go ring this bell that's, we put in a trailer hitch now. It used to be in front of the first phase classroom, but for hell week, it's never going to leave your site. It's going to always be there on the, in this trailer hitch thing that we have set up. So when you're freezing on the beach or no matter where you are, it's right there, like 20 yards away. And all you got to do is ring that three times and okay, bam, there you go. You get some hot chocolate, you get a little coffee, some donuts, and you're comfortable again. Yeah. Um, so we make it very easy to opt out. And a lot of people do because of that cold. And I think because they haven't been tested up to that point, it's been an idea. It's been this thing, hey, I'm going to test myself here in hell week. But along the way, they haven't been uncomfortable enough to realize, oh, you know what? I can keep moving forward here. I can be a little cold for a while. That's fine. Um, and look what these other people did by reading these other stories. Look what these guys did in World War II. Look at what, what happened to these people during our Revolutionary War. Look at what, no matter what it is. Like people have faced adversity time and time again throughout the course of human history. And you know what? I'm going to be okay here. I'm going to be. I'm going to shiver a little bit, but uh, that's okay. I'm going to. I'm going to do this. But that being cold part is. I think being cold is probably the most uncomfortable that one can be. Um, Ish. sucks yeah <laughs> and that's why i see guys getting in these ice baths and stuff and i'm like oh man like then the health benefits people are talking about with these ice baths and then going into the what is it the dry saunas you're supposed to do now is that right the dry heat and then go I into think the, a lot of people are doing something. that yeah um and all that seems to change which is why i'm like 
don't have an ice bath yet is because I remember in high school, all the girls coming into the cafeteria and eating bagels and cream cheese, because back then there was for whatever reason, that was like something healthy to eat. Uh, yeah. and so it's always stuck with, or, or a carbo load, you know, we're going to have all this pasta, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, work out and then we're going to have pasta. Uh, and maybe, yeah. maybe there were some other things we could have done that would have been a little, little better for what we were trying to achieve. Um, uh, so I, I'm always a bit skeptical of, uh, of all these things that, uh, are, I'm told to do for my, for my health. Well, I tend to think about that as like, what did our natural environment used to show us naturally, right? We were never in a room that was 180 degrees. So I live in Las Vegas. I will still go work out when it's 115 outside. Like, I'm not going to let that slow me down. I'll also, you know, on the rare day, it's like in the thirties, I'm still going to go outside and work out then too. But I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I necessarily have to take a cold like an ice <laughs> plunge all the time, you know, it just, I'm, I'm kind of with you where I'm like a little bit skeptical, but I also, I know there's benefits from the research I've done, but I don't think there's anything that suggests there's like this, these crazy benefits to going at these new extremes we can create with machines. So oh, that makes me feel so much better that you just said that. <laughs> you get a free pass. I've been like, oh man, do I need to get one of these ice tubs now and put it outside? And then you, you know, you put it on Instagram or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not, uh, so thrilled about, uh, doing that. I think it's more for me, more fitness today is more about being able to go out and do these hunts and have these experiences and then keep up with my kids, um, yeah. be able to be healthy enough and mobile enough to be able to keep up with them. And then to deal with life as situations get thrown at me that I need to adapt to. Um, so it's, it's really, yeah, dude, do you, live, you live in park city. Like you're going to get plenty cold taking the, <laughs> the, the chair up to, you know, the top of Jupiter. There Peak you go. You know Jupiter it, you know passed. it out here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that there's your pass right awesome. there. <laughs> awesome. So cool. And, uh, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I've been looking forward to this for the longest time. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, but, uh, quickly before we go one, how long did it take you from inception? Um, not just the idea, but like the sitting down, okay, I'm starting to write, uh, to do, to write this, this book. Uh, and then what did you change in your life? We've touched on it a tiny bit, but, uh, what did you change in your life? uh, holistically after going through the entire experience of researching and writing this book? It probably took me, um, from when the book actually got commissioned to when I turned it into my editor was probably 15 months, I would say. Um, and what I've changed is, I mean, I think honestly, the change most for me has been psychological. I think by going into Alaska for, you know, more than a month and sort of braving that wilderness, both literally and, 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 uh, you know, metaphorically, uh, I just had like a gear that I didn't really realize was there. And just my tolerance is just way higher than it was for everything, yeah. right? Like stress tolerance, um, better perspective on life. Like I just, you know, if you were like, Hey, by the way, after this podcast, the catch is like, you got to go run 40 miles right now after this, I would be like, all right, well, that doesn't sound fun, but yeah, I can do that. You know, I kind of just have this like gear now where I'm just like, yeah, I can do that. No big deal. Um, and I think that that's pretty valuable. So I'd say that's the number one thing besides that, you know, a million different lifestyle changes, which I kind of allude to in the book. So. Yeah. yeah. Having that perspective and be able to put things in relative terms, I found is, uh, is very helpful. Um, yeah, dude, like after your experience in the seals, you probably come back into like whatever you could face in park city. It's just going to be like, yeah, I got this. Like, <laughs> come on, you know? Yeah. And that the danger of that and not being aware of it is that when you are dealing with someone who has an event that they believe is traumatic for them, it is 
like that talking to the yeah. boss and messing it up or doing the presentation. Like for them, it's all, it, it's equating to that death 300, 400, 500 years ago, whatever it, whatever it might be. Uh, so instead of belittling that or uh, it, it's recognizing that, hey, they're equating this to the same types of things years ago or in your personal experience uh, that might actually have been death. And that and that gives you a way to approach and deal with with them and their situation. So it gives you a little a little empathy, I guess, for, uh, for, yeah. for for dealing with with others rather than just like psh, putting them in a category that you don't want to deal with, I guess. Yeah, 100 um, percent. And I think it's like, you know, talking to that, like telling them, let's go let's go try some stuff outside like you know because that that i think will help that can help reframe it for people but yeah for sure you're absolutely right yeah but i think we'd be a better better country for sure if uh people would take a breath for a second put the phones down and appreciate all the things that we do have and then where some of these things came from like the the food in the, the grocery store but uh but what is uh what is next for you before uh before i let you go you're still uh still teaching at uh at unlv and do you have yep, another book that you're uh, you're interested in in writing, or how are you prioritizing all these different experiences that you've had and things you might want to uh, explore in a in a future book? Uh, and how are you racking and stacking those uh, to determine what's next? Yeah, so I'm still uh, at UNLV, which I love because it makes me think through my process, you know, uh, and just get questions from from kids, and it's like, oh man, I never thought about why I did that this way, you know, keeps me up on my pop culture on that kind of stuff too. Uh, and I got another book I'm working on right now too. So I spent, uh, the summer I was, uh, in the Amazon for a while, took this like canoe way deep and, um, have a bunch of other travels lined up for, for that book. So chipping away at that, you know, I mean, you know, the process, what that's like. So it's, it's both equally maddening and rewarding. So I'm having fun with that. And, yeah, that's what's on the horizon. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear there's another another book in the works because when I when I talk to somebody that has a, a fantastic book out and they haven't started the next one, when I'm talking to them, I'm like, dang it, you know what? Or there was a long a space between one book that I enjoyed and the next one, if it's been like five years or something. And I'm like, do I have to wait another five before this person does something again? So I'm glad to hear that you have something else in the works. And I'm super excited that it's uh, down on the Amazon because uh, it's a, that's an area that I'd love to go explore someday uh, where I haven't really been yet. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to reading that when it comes out. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm glad you liked this one. Hopefully I can deliver on the next one. Too. Awesome. I'm sure you will. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. And now that we've done the podcast, I'm going to give this to my, to my daughter to read. Um, I love and, that. Uh, yeah. Then our other, our other kids, when they get old enough to be able to, to read it. So um, that is awesome. So thank you so much for writing this. It's a super valuable book for everyone to read, particularly right now uh, in this stage that we're at in, um, in the course of human evolution and particularly in this, this country dealing with what we're dealing with. So thank you so much for writing it. And man, thanks for so much for taking the time today. I sure appreciate it. That was a blast, man. It was so fun to talk to another writer. We can commiserate about all the, all the side effects of the job. Oh, yeah. So I love <laughs> the work you're doing, the message you're putting out. So it was a real honor. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, thanks so much. And we'll come, uh, we'll talk about the Amazon next time. Yeah, sounds good, man. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. I was just talking with Michael Easter, my guest who wrote the book, The Comfort Crisis, uh, about the importance of being uncomfortable, the importance of getting comfortable being uncomfortable, as we would say in the SEAL teams. Uh, and there was an entire generation, well, most generations up to today uh, had to be comfortable being uncomfortable. They had to face adversity. They had to take an active role in putting food on the table through hunting. They had to defend their family, defend the tribe. They couldn't outsource those sorts of things. Uh, and life was tough um, at the very, at a basic 
level, um, meaning food and defense for the most part. But uh, I just got back from the 80th anniversary commemoration events at Pearl Harbor. And I went out there with the Best Defense Foundation. You might have heard my podcast with Donnie Edwards, uh, former NFL superstar. Uh, and he started the Best Defense Foundation with his wife, Catherine. And they take World War II veterans, primarily now anyway, um, back to the battlefields on which they fought, giving them a chance to make peace with what happened back there, say goodbye to their friends who didn't make it and those that they've lost in, in, in the intervening years. Uh, it's an amazing organization. So check out the best defense foundation.org. Um, but I took my daughter on this trip. So we were out there in Pearl Harbor for a week. Uh, my daughter is 16 and she got to spend almost every single second of every single day because it was so busy out there volunteering, getting these world war II veterans to and from the different events, um, getting them in their wheelchairs, getting them out of their wheelchairs, onto the buses, uh, off the buses, to their seat at the event ceremony, um, that sort of a thing for an entire week. Um, and she got to hear their stories about growing up during the Depression, how their family put food on the table, where they were uh, on December 7th, 1941. Um, some were actually in Pearl Harbor. Uh, others heard about it on the radio uh, and joined up to defend the nation, uh, and then went to war, uh, and then came home and built the nation that we have today. Uh, not only the most powerful nation on earth, but the most generous. And we often overlook that as well. But um, in this gear highlight portion, we had some amazing organizations that helped make all that possible. And Maui Brewing Company, along with Chula Vista Brewery in San Diego, they created this 80th anniversary Day of Infam Infamy ale. And, uh, it is awesome. It is so good. I might've liberated a few. Um, I've had a couple to drink as well. Um, but these, these are awesome and, and this benefits the best defense foundation. So all the guys at, uh, Maui Brew Co and everybody at Chula Vista Brewery were so awesome and they made quite a beer. So, uh, this is awesome. So track it down, get it and know that the proceeds go to an amazing organization. So thank you guys. This is so good. Sincerely appreciate it. Um, being out there, I got to meet a guy named Jack Holder. Now, Jack Holder, he wrote a book not too long ago uh, to chronicle some of his experiences, but he was at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. Uh, he was one of the first people to get shot at, watched the planes as they banked into Pearl Harbor and dropped the torpedoes. Um, and he gave me this coin, Jack Holder, amazing guy. But he went on to uh, the pilot and sunk a Japanese submarine and then went over to the Atlantic and uh, to the English Channel and served flying out of the UK. And he sunk a German submarine. Um, he also in the, in the Pacific helped sink a carrier, a Japanese carrier. Uh, amazing. I mean, that's back when things were tough, but uh, highly recommend picking up the book, Fear, Adrenaline and Excitement, the Jack Holder story. So we don't forget what this generation did for us to give us these freedoms, options, and opportunities that we have today. Uh, Best Defense Foundation right there. Uh, this coin commemorates the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Um, check out the Best Defense Foundation for sure. And how did we get out there? American Airlines hooked it up with a flight. So we had this flight, everybody working the flight from the pilots, crew, everybody uh, were volunteers. 
and uh, they didn't take weren't taking leave or anything like that. They volunteered for this flight uh, to and from Hawaii, and uh, they have a military uh, division at American Airlines. Um, it was pretty cool. The, the flight out there was was pretty special. Um, Bottle Breacher created these uh, these bottle breachers specifically for the event as well. Um, my buddy Eli Crane over there uh, at Bottle Breacher and uh, Born Primitive, their athletic line they sponsored, and so did Nine Line Apparel right there. Uh, they did a ton as well. But um, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. Uh, this was the the, bro- the 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 program for the 80th anniversary commemoration events and. Uh, Best Defense Foundation right here. This has the bios on the 63 World War II veterans that we took out there. So reading about what these guys did, um, and when I say guys, I mean women as well, because we had four uh, four women as part of the group, and uh, just incredible. Um, puts things in perspective, and uh, it's always helpful, I think, to keep things in relative terms when we're thinking about uh, adversity and what we're going through, because uh, these people stepped up to uh, give us this freedom, and we need to be good inheritors of that freedom. All right, that's it. So pick up the book, Bottle Breacher, Maui Bruco, Chula Vista Brewery, Nine Line, Born Primitive, American Airlines. Thank you guys so much, Best Defense Foundation. What you're doing for these veterans is... Uh, uh, I guess you have to really experience it to, to understand, but uh, giving them closure and doing this for that generation is uh, it's incredible, very special. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. Find out more about Michael Easter, go to his website, which is Easter Michael. But if you put Michael Easter into your web browser, it'll just pop up, but EasterMichael.com. You can link to his Instagram from there and follow along with everything that he has going on. His book, The Comfort Crisis, is on shelves now, available anywhere books are sold, and I highly recommend picking it up. You can follow me on officialjackcar.com and link to Jack Car USA on the socials from there. You can go to jackcarusa.com for the merch. And my next book, In the Blood, is coming May 2022 and available for pre-order now. Thank you so much for tuning in. Sincerely appreciated. And until the next time, take care, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.